Hello, hello, happy Sabbath. Welcome to church. We're glad you could worship with us. Um, shout out to the boys' praise team. Always fun to do praise with them. Just so you know, if you're in children's ministry and you're a guy, you too can be on a praise team when you're in high school one day. I just want to give a special shout out to anyone that's watching us online, whether you're in Arizona, somewhere on the West Coast, whether you're gathered in church watching us together, whether you're just watching from your bedroom on a phone or listening on, on your car and your way somewhere. We're glad you could join us at least in spirit and fellowship on this Sabbath. Um, we've been joining us for the past few weeks. Um, you know that we've kind of been in this season of kind of standalone sermons. For the most part, at Rock Fellowship, if you've been with us for the better part of a few months, you know that we generally like to operate, at least from our speaking schedule, in terms of series. And so there's one topic that we cover for anywhere from two to six weeks, whether it's about what to do when you're going through a hard time or whether it's a delve into the book of Esther. Generally, for the most part, we'll go through a series and for a few weeks at a time, whether it's a month or two, we'll go over a specific topic and have several sermons that pertain to the book of Esther, that pertain to how to find relevance in your spirituality when your life is not going well, or so on and so forth. But actually, kind of for the next few weeks, two weeks before this, um, last week, if you weren't here, um, you missed out on an, ama an amazing message uh, by our elder Ken, who talked about the power of your choices in regards to your story. And before that, we had our conference president, Elder Dan Linwood, share about the dedication sermon uh, ceremony for Solomon's Temple as well. We're kind of in this series of standalone messages. So if you're joining us for the first time this week, if you're new, it's perfect time to join us. You have not missed out on anything whether you're joining us online. There's no part one, part two that you got to recap on. This isn't a serious finale to anything. This is its own standalone message. And I was coming up with this message, and I was thinking about an illustration that could work for, for the topic I'm going to share about today. And really, it's for a specific person, a specific type of person that's going through a specific thing in their life. But we'll get to that in a little bit. But as I was thinking about this, I was thinking about um, stories, as Ken was talking about last week. And I thought about what makes a really good story? What makes an amazing, a book that you read, a movie that you saw, a TV series, an anime, a cartoon, what makes a really, really compelling story? And for me, for the most part, I find protagonists, the main character of a story, to be rather like, nah, take it or leave it, right? For the most part, they're a good person. You relate to their, you know, the mission that they have, right? You root for them. They're like charismatic. They're likable. But what I think makes a story really interesting and what takes a story from like pretty good to amazing is how good is your villain? How good is the bad guy? How good is the antagonist in the story? And I feel like for a lot of what makes a good villain is someone that like you can kind of relate to. They're not just some deranged madman that's evil for the sake of being evil. Like, you can kind of like, they're kind of human in a sense. They have a backstory. You can understand why they got to where they got to. An example of this is um, if you follow the Avengers series, and if you haven't watched it and you're going to say I'm a spoiler, that movie has been out for longer than some people in this building have been alive. So it's been a long time since Avengers has been around. Um, but the main villain in Avengers is this guy by the name of Thanos. Um, and his whole thing is his, his home planet was destroyed by a lack of resources. And so that kind of drove him crazy. And now he wants to save the universe from a lack of resources. And he's going to do that by destroying half the population, which is a terrible thing to do. But I was on the internet and I saw this post. Um, and this post was how did they were describing the entirety of a movie plot in one sentence. So in one sentence, can you summarize the entirety of a said movie? And for Avengers, the, the sentence went like this. Single father tries to solve world hunger with his rock collection. Single father tries to solve world hunger with his rock collection. If you know the story of Avengers, it kind of sort of makes sense. You leave out a lot. But it kind of makes sense. This guy is trying to solve world hunger. There aren't enough resources. There are too many people. We have to solve this. My own planet was destroyed by this, and I want to save everyone else. And I'm going to do it. And up until that point, you kind of relate to him. Yeah, like starvation is bad. I'm sorry you went through that. And then he's going, I'm going to do it 
by destroying half the population. You're like, boo, I don't know about that one. That's a little weird, dude. But again, I feel like a lot of, a lot of villains, the way you can kind of tell it's a really good villain is they're kind of human. Like there's a part of you that kind of relates to them and can kind of understand where they're going from, but they're a little bit crazy. And I feel like the highest accolade you can give to a villain, whether it's fictional in, you know, a, a movie somewhere, a superhero movie, or in real life, is when you've decided as a human population that we will no longer name our child after this person. Right? I feel like it's the highest accolade you can give to a villain, right? You're never going to name your child Hitler. No one's going to name their child Genghis. No one's going to name their child, you know, we're coming up for a musical. I've never met a, a person named Goliath, right? No one's going to name their son or daughter after the bad guy in David versus Goliath. I've never met, you know, if you go through biblical stories, most people, a lot of people in this room have a biblical name, Jonathan, Daniel, Joshua, Michael, right? But there are a few names in the Bible, and I've seen some people go pretty far in, like I've seen Jephthahs and stuff like that. I've never met anyone named, I think, I think there are a few off the list. No one is going to name their daughter Lucifer. No one's going to name their daughter Satan. I've yet to meet a Jezebel or an Ahab. You know, that's a kind of off the list. Uh, and of course, Goliath is like, no one's going to name their child a human being Goliath. But I feel like the most infamous villain, right, the most infamous bad guy, antagonist in the Bible is someone who we've kind of crossed this person off the names list. And to be fair, I think it's interesting because like the name Goliath, it just sounds kind of gross, right? You can name a machine that, but no one's going to name their cute baby Goliath, right? But there are a few names in the Bible where like, I feel like that works in English, but that person did something so heinous, so terrible. I cannot, I do not want my child to bear the legacy of this person. And for me, I feel like that villain, the villain in the Bible, outside of, of course, Satan, is a man by the name of Judas Iscariot, who's most well-known for betraying Jesus. And, he's, and it's, it's a classic villain, right? You grow up in the story, you grow up in the church, in the children's ministry, you learn very early on, Judas is a bad guy. Don't be Judas. And the way he's like portrayed to people is like this angry man, he's bitter, he was a treasurer, he's probably really miserly, he's always muttering under his breath. Um, but today in this message, I kind of want to delve into a little bit of Judas's story and a little bit of his backstory, and maybe to a certain degree, help you see where is this guy coming from? Who was he really? And what was he outside of that one infamous moment that he had? I invite you to join me in prayer. Heavenly Father, Lord, um, as we just sang a few minutes ago, Lord, the spirit of the Lord is here and a miracle can happen now, Father. That is our prayer. And I ask that in this time, um, from this point forward, anything I say from now on, be not my words, but from you, Lord. Not my knowledge, not my wisdom, not my thought. All of this comes from you above, Lord. Hide me behind your cross and your grace. Lord, you know who this message is for, Father. You know who needs to hear this. You know who will be encouraged by this truth, Father. And I ask that whoever that is in this audience, Father, you move in their hearts, you soften their hearts, you open their ears, and allow your love and your grace to enter into their lives. We thank you for the Sabbath and for the joy of fellowship. I praise in your son, Jesus' name. Amen. So Judas is one of Jesus' 12 famous disciples, and his most notable accomplishment is that he betrays Jesus and sells him out to the Jewish authorities. So if you're unfamiliar, G Jesus, the first four books of the New Testament describe the life of Jesus, and during his time here, um, at one point in his ministry, he prays and he handpicks 12 people that are going to be kind of his inner circle, right, that will be with him, live with him full time, um, learn at his feet, and also like perform miracles in his name. It was kind of a huge honor to be part of this group. And for the most part, this group was filled with nobodies, right? Fishermen, uneducated people, who is, this pe who is this person? And for a lot of the disciples of Jesus, we actually don't know too much backstory, Judas included. We're not exactly sure what he did. Some think that he might have been a disciple of John the Baptist, some think, we're not really sure, right? Outside of a few of them, we're not sure what Judas did. 
And what makes Judas an interesting antagonist is this. What makes him kind of more than just a bad person is you have to ask yourself the question. What Judas did was this. Judas betrays Jesus, sells him out to the Jewish authorities after spending three and a half years at the feet of Jesus. He lived, it wasn't some intern that came and went. He lived with Jesus. He slept where Jesus slept, ate at the same table, got a firsthand experience at every single thing Jesus did. And after three and a half years with this man, with God himself, he decides, I'm gonna kill this guy. Or I'm gonna play a very instrumental part in handing him over to the authorities because I, for whatever reason, do not believe in, do not trust, do not like this man named Jesus. And I feel like that's what makes what he did so heinous. Like you lived with Jesus. You literally physically followed Jesus. I spiritually followed Jesus, but you literally followed Jesus. You, were, you had a front row seat to the feeding of the 5,000. You held one of those baskets. You performed miracles in Jesus's name. You saw him raise dead people to life. You heard the greatest sermon ever. You were probably right next to him. Yet after all of that, you decided to betray the son of God. And you have to ask yourself the question, like how, how did he end up doing that? How did he get to such a place where after experiencing firsthand, physically, literally, the goodness of God, how did he end up betraying him? And I think in a lot of ways, sometimes we're the message we're given is, he was just that bad of a dude. He was just that evil. That's just who Judas was, just so rotten to the core that he could spend that much time with Jesus and still sell him out. I think it's important to know, again, to re like remember like everything that Judas went through as being a part of Jesus' crew and that Jesus handpicked Judas to be a part of his crew. He's not someone that slipped in. He's not someone that's just like, oh, where did you come from? Jesus prayed on a mountain and prayerfully handpicked 12 disciples, one of whom was Judas Iscariot, one person that would betray him later on in life. It's also important to note his role Jesus' crew. Um, Judas was being the treasurer of Jesus' entire ministry. So people would often, again, Jesus was a nonprofit organization, so no, he didn't really make money. And so people would just contribute, donate to Jesus. Um, you know, people would invite him at their home, and he would, you know, he lived essentially off the generosity of others, right? So when Judas signed up to follow Jesus, he essentially signed up to being homeless with Jesus. Right? And he'd go house to house, place to place, and people would donate money to him and say, hey, I love what you're doing. Let me, here's some money, let me support you. And Judas was the person in charge of handling that money. And I feel like a lot of times it's portrayed negatively. Oh, it's because he loved the money so much. He was probably miserly. He was probably like not generous. He probably just like, you know, super stingy and he was super strict. He probably didn't smile that much. But I would argue the fact that he was the treasurer of Jesus's ministry says a lot about his character. Think about this. In Jesus's crew, there was someone that used to be a tax collector. He was a professional tax collector and they said, let's go with Judas. Right? I feel like that says a lot about if you had someone that worked for the IRS or was an accountant and, you know, handled money, like worked for a hedge fund, and he was part of your crew, wouldn't you want him to handle the money? But for whatever reason, Jesus included, and the disciples got together, yeah, not Matthew. Let's have Judas do it. Right? Which I think says a lot to Judas is not only his character, but also his competency. He clearly wasn't a dumb dude. He was highly intelligent. And not only was he intelligent, he probably garnered a lot of trust from the other disciples. I mean, think about it. You wouldn't give your money to someone you don't trust or you don't think is competent. And if you didn't think so, they probably wouldn't be handling your money for very long. So again, he was the, he was the treasurer of Jesus' ministry. And in a lot of ways, he had a lot of things going for him, handpicked by Jesus, clearly trusted, competent, loyal. 
experienced everything Jesus did. There's no indication during the ministry of Jesus outside of one sentence where he kind of mutters under his breath when someone breaks an expensive um, jar of perfume at Jesus' feet. He mutters, does she know how much this could have been worth? This could have fed so many, this could have fed so many people who are out on the streets, which in and of itself isn't a terrible thing to say, but I think it's stretched out really negatively against him. So I think the question then pertains, given Judas's relative backstory, why is he portrayed as such a villain? Why is he such a terrible dude? Right? Why is nobody here named Judas? Right? And why will nobody ever na- be named Judas? And in a sentence, this is Judas's whole life. I think at least we've been portrayed in the church. In a sentence, Jesus, a Judas betrays Jesus by handing him over to the Jewish authorities, despite the fact that he has spent three and a half years with this man who changed his life and allowed him to experience. And I feel like that's what's so scandalous about it. He betrays Jesus despite the relapse. And the question we ask someone like Judas, as someone that, don't, that people that don't have the privilege of actually sitting at Jesus' feet, of physically following Jesus, is how can you betray someone who you bonded so well over? How can you betray someone who showed you nothing but love? How can you betray someone that changed your life? You were a nobody. Nobody in history would remember you, but now everyone knows who you are, in part because Jesus prayerfully handpicked you to be a part of his crew and he mentored you, and he instructed you, and he helped raise you, he empowered you. He gave you, for you saw Jesus walk on water. You saw Jesus calm a storm. You of anyone had the most evidence of Jesus's divinity, and yet you threw him under the bus, and you stabbed him in the back. How dare you? How could you? And the reason for Judas's betrayal is a little bit under debate, um, but there are three main theories that people have as to why Jesus, uh, Judas decided to betray Jesus. And the first is the, the simplest, the first contention is that he just loved money so much. He was a treasurer and he was just so greedy and selfish. He had love for the worldly things way too much. He was slipping money to himself as a treasurer and he really just wanted the 30 pieces of silver that he received for selling Jesus out. So one, example, one, one instance, one um, evidence against him is that he must have just loved money so much, just loved worldly things that he couldn't help but sell Jesus out. The temptation of receiving money for Jesus was too great. Another theory is this. Um, it's a little bit more convincing in my opinion. It's that Jesus, a Judas looked at Jesus who claimed to be the Messiah, who did all these amazing things, who had so much potential to change the world. And he was disgruntled at why, he, why Jesus wasn't taking a more proactive stance. And he kind of expected Jesus to lead a military campaign against Rome and change the world and, and establish the kingdom of Jerusalem. But Jesus was such a pacifist. And he told people to give to Caesar what is Caesar's. He told people to love his enemies. And that made him, it didn't sit well with him. He expected Jesus to be one way. He expected Jesus to be the political ruler that put Judea back on the map, right? Let's, let's conquer those Roman oppressors. And yet Jesus talked about loving your enemies and praying for those who persecute you. And it seemed, it was very clear that Jesus had no agenda to lead a political campaign. He was not gonna rally troops. And he was just content spreading the kingdom of heaven, which to Judas was not what he wanted. Again, the second thing, on the low, knew that Jesus was the Messiah, but he was frustrated that Jesus wasn't really flexing his Messiah muscles. Like, he's like, at this point, Jesus, you should really establish your kingdom. And so what he wanted to do was he wanted to test Jesus. He wanted to force Jesus's hand. And his, the concept, the theory is that if I bring these troops, if I arrest Jesus and I bring him before the Sanhedrin, Jesus will be forced to use the God card. He'll be forced to call down angels. He'll be forced to flex his muscles and by power and brute force establish the kingdom of Judea on this earth. Yes, right? Those are three theories. Theory one, he, he loved money. Theory two, 
he just wasn't who I thought he would be, and so I don't like him anymore. And theory three is I do think he is who he says he is, but he's not really working on my time, my timetable. Let's speed things up. Oh my goodness, Jesus, you're being arrested. Jesus, what are you gonna do? And to his horror, Jesus does nothing. He doesn't defend himself. He walks away and is crucified on the cross. And to be honest, I had to ask myself this question as I was coming up with this sermon and, and really breaking down what it exactly was that Judas did. And especially when you look at the three possibilities of what motivated Judas to betray Jesus. A love for money in the world, Jesus wasn't who we thought he would was and he, he doesn't have the priorities of Judas and he wanted to test Jesus and force his hand. To be honest, when I fit the question like this, Judas turned his back on Jesus because money was a bigger priority in his life or because Jesus didn't fit his own preconceived agenda or because he wanted to test Jesus, I couldn't help but feel like I shared one too many similarities with this man, with the greatest antagonist in all of scripture. And it's ironic for me, especially because I've stood on this very stage and just a few months ago shared a message about how how I, my testimony and how I accepted the call to ministry and how because I accepted my call to ministry, Jesus changed my life. And my life has never been the same. And I acknowledge the goodness and the greatness of God. And actually it was about almost exactly three and a half years ago that I called Pastor Chris on October 31st, 2018 and said, hey, Pastor Chris, thank you for the offer. I would love to come to Rock. I'll see you in a few months, right? And I, I came here a few months ago and I shared this testimony about how because of that, my life has never been the same. And God has changed my life and I've experienced God's love and he's awesome and I'm a different person because of that and God definitely has to plan for me. Yet after saying all of that, could I confidently say that I've never turned my back on Jesus? That despite that experience I've had with Jesus, despite the fact that I believe in Jesus, he's changed my life, I've spent time with him and he's, he's, he's nurtured me and grown me. Could I really say that I've never put my agenda above Jesus's? Could I really say and with, with acknowledging the fact that Jesus is real and that he's changed my life, can I truly say I've never put my interest above Jesus? I've never had a choice where I could do what Jesus wanted me to do or what I wanted to do. And I've always done what Jesus wanted me to do. And to be honest, I couldn't. There's no way I could say that. I can very confidently say I had to stop myself. There's so many instances where that clearly wasn't the case. And there's this weird tension in my life where on one hand, God is real. God has changed my life. I love God. I am a self-proclaimed follower of Jesus. I'm a Christian. Yet at the same time, there are moments in my life, there are whole seasons in my life where in my own personal relationship with Jesus, I don't know that I could say the same thing. And if someone were to peer into my personal life, how you personally relate to Jesus, they wouldn't be able to say the same thing about my own life. Last week, Ken shared a message about how our story is our choice and how every single person in here, your life is essentially a letter or a story. In a lot of ways, the, the, the choices that you make in your life can affect who you become today. And there's a power and a very empowering message in that. And I think what makes Ken such a good storyteller is not just the way he tells stories, but the type of stories that Ken has. And just on a side note, if you've ever um, want to hear one of Ken's crazy stories, just go into his car and don't put your seatbelt on. Just try that. Go into the car and don't put your seatbelt on. And he'll lean over and look at you. He's like, oh, hey, Pastor John, you know, I was working in the hospital one day. And uh, this guy came and just bloodied up. I mean, he was really gross. And he, like, he didn't make it in the store. He didn't make it, but uh, he didn't have his seatbelt on. He was in the car. He didn't have his seatbelt on. And the car got in an accident, got thrown out of the car, died on impact. 
right? And then the Yule, oh, yes, whoo, let me just put this on real quick, right? Ken's got so many of those stories, and I remember, distinctly remember that we had a, a last year, we had a retreat with just the youth. We went to Cannon Beach, and it was the last day, and we were getting packed up and getting ready to leave. And all the kids were outside by the cars. All their stuff was in, and he pulled me aside, and he was like, hey, Pastor Jonathan, you know, we're getting ready to leave. You know what would really ruin this trip is if we got in a really bad car accident. And, you know, there's one time I was driving over camping, and I heard about this bus, this van full of kids from, from a, school, a church in SoCal who were driving up, and they got in a big car accident, a bunch of people died. Let's make sure that doesn't happen. It's <laughs> like, what? He's <laughs> like, all right, good. Go tell the kids that. <laughs> and then it was amazing. And, and I think it really changed the way that I view it. And again, Ken has so many good stories. And I think a lot of times when he says that concept, right, like your life is a story, you can look back on the scope of everything that's happened in your life. And whether you have stories like Ken or, or instances in your life, you find yourself in highs and lows. And I would argue that for most of us that have on a daily basis made a commitment to follow Jesus, you can probably identify at one point in your life a season where you go through something that I like to call, we'll call a spiritual depression. Now, I wanna create a clarifying moment here. At this church, we've preached several sermons about mental and emotional health and what God looks like and how God responds to you when you're mentally and emotionally depressed. And we have a series called, um, I'm Going Through Something. There's a standalone message on a YouTube page called How God Responds to Depression. And we've talked about that. And I think there's a lot of theological relevance when you're going through those times and that can give you hope and encouragement. What I'm talking about today is not that. I'm talking about a season in your life with no correlation to how your life is going, how you're doing financially, how you're doing emotionally, how you're doing mentally. A season in your life where your spiritual walk is largely defined by apathy, disillusionment, irrelevance, and distance. Where you, it's not that you stopped believing in God, it's not that you don't think God is real, it's that for whatever reason, whether it's the busyness of life, whether it's you have a few doubts, you're burnt out, um, you're unsure about a certain things, your walk with Jesus is largely distant and God is not that relevant in your life. And for whatever reason, you just can't make time to spend time with Jesus, despite the fact that you would claim that God is important to you and that you love God. That's what I mean by spiritual depression. And the reason I create a separation there is because I find that there's almost an inverse relationship with how well your life is going versus how amazing God is in your life, right? Isn't there something to say about when life is going awesome, financially, emotionally, relationally, everything is vibing. School is going well, work is going well. In those moments, God is largely irrelevant in our lives. It feels like there's not a need for God and we have to really struggle to dig deep to find relevance in our relationship with God when everything is going well. On the flip side, when life is going terribly, like the winds and the waves are in your face, the boat is rocking and you're unsure, you have doubt and you're scared and you're nervous, those are the moments when I feel like God becomes really, really real in your life. And you cling to God and you pray and you journal and you, you pray on your knees facing a window, you do your devotionals. And I think that's the reason why I wanna create this separation, that there's not necessarily a correlation between your life going well and your spiritual walk going well as well. And I imagine that for a lot of people in this room, if you follow Jesus for any moderate amount of time, you can probably relate to that in some way, shape or form. I think Ken referenced this sermon um, when he spoke last week, this is the dark night of the soul, right? A moment in your life when God feels very distant and not very relevant in your life. Maybe someone in here, you're experiencing this now, where you're at church because clearly God holds some level of relevance in your life. And if someone were to ask you, you would say, I am a Christian, I believe in God, God is good, there's a lot of good values in the Bible, I would love to raise my kids in the church with Christian values. But personally, I'm in a little bit of a spiritual rut. I'm in a spiritual depression. 
And a good way to ask yourself that question, a good limits test is actually to ask yourself, when's the last time you had a heartful prayer that went beyond just a wish list? When's the last time you opened the Bible, not for the purpose of getting through a chapter, but to really understand the meaning and context behind the scripture and glean meaning and relevance into your own life and ask yourself, what is God trying to tell me through this message? And again, we can chalk it up to a lot of reasons. Maybe you're busy, maybe you're burnt out, maybe there are a few doubts in your mind that you haven't really ironed out yet. And so you'll get to it when you figure out those doubts. But for whatever reason it may be, when you figure out those doubts, I don't think it's that unique of a place to be where you're a follower of Jesus, where you claim to be, but at the same time, if someone would appear into your private life, into your heart and your soul in the way only Jesus can, there'd be a disconnect there. Where it's one thing to talk the talk, but in your own life, in your private life, you're not necessarily walking the walk. And as someone who's been there in that season of life myself, I can totally relate. And I know there's a lot of shame and almost a pressure when you find yourself in that situation, especially if you're in a position of authority or leadership. For instance, I feel like for a parent, that pressure must be really real. And again, I have no experience in this, but I can only imagine that if you're a parent that strives to teach and you wanna raise your kids with Christian values, you wanna emulate God's character to your kids, yet at the same time, you on your own are struggling with your relationship with God, I imagine there's a lot of pressure and almost shame and guilt there where you want to raise your kids a certain way. You want your kids to hold certain values. You want your kids to understand the truth and the goodness of following God. And you tell them this and you make them pray, and you make them read the Bible, but on your own, you can't remember the last time you did that. Or if you're a teacher, right? I think that's the most obvious. If you're a teacher, especially at Adventist school, and I know for myself, I still distinctly remember the names and faces of all my elementary school teachers in academy who really shaped who I was today. I imagine there's pressure there, right? You have to teach, you have to give knowledge to these kids about who God is. But if someone appear into your private life, could you really say you're walking that walk on your own? Or if you're involved, especially in a ministry at church, you're part of a praise team, you teach a Sabbath school, you're part of a potluck team, you're part of our board, you're part of one of our departments, you're part of our welcome and guest team. I can almost feel there's that conflict, that disingenuousness where, yes, God is important, church is important, but in my own life, in my private life, I have to admit, there is a little bit of a disconnect. My priorities are over God's right now. My agenda is more important than God's right now. God is not that relevant in my life right now. Or especially, if you are someone that is, if there's someone in your life that you're praying for and that you, you've been inviting them to church, they're not really religious, they kind of walked away from church, but you're praying for them and you're inviting them to church and you're you know, trying to bring up Jesus whenever you can, I think you especially feel that pressure then when you know you are that person's avenue to God. That person shapes a lot of how they view Jesus and Christianity and church based on how you act. It can feel even more disingenuous and feel the pressure where, I have to hold myself to a certain standard. That person, I've been praying for that person, I've been inviting that person to church, and that person's view of God, of church, of Christian love is based on my actions. And again, it's a terrible place to be where there's shame, there's pressure, there's guilt. Uh, when you know that someone's counting on you to help them experience the relationship with Jesus, yet in your own personal relationship with Jesus, you're in a season of spiritual depression. And again, it's not that you don't acknowledge the good things God has done for you. If someone were to ask you, you can give your testimony on that spot. Jesus has changed my life. I love church. I've, I've, my life, I've grown so much over the past few years because of my relationship with this community and my devotional life. Just right now, like where I am, it's just not it for me right now. There's not that much relevance. I'm in a little bit of a spiritual rut. And when it's framed that way, you can't help but ask yourself, are you 
that different from Judas? Is he that unique of an antagonist? Is there really nothing you can relate to about the man that betrayed Jesus, who's the most infamous villain in all of scripture? Is there really that big of a difference? Judas, a man who recognized all that Jesus had done for him, would attest to the fact that Jesus changed his life. Judas performed miracles, yet still turned his back on Jesus. And the reality of Judas' situation is this. Judas was neither the first, nor would he be the last person to betray Jesus. In fact, just after Judas shows up with the armed guards, every single one of Jesus' disciples flee. And just as Jesus predicted, in his darkest moment, Jesus is completely alone. Just before Judas shows up, he asks the disciples to pray for him. They all fall asleep. And then right after his arrest, Peter goes a step further where he denies any association or any knowledge of Jesus just to selfishly save his own skin. And in the moment of Jesus's like weakest moment, most alone moment, everyone he loved turns his back on him. And so the reality is, is this, Judas, Judas's betrayal of Jesus differed in degree, but not in kind. He wasn't that unique. And there was no one in that moment that could say, I stood up for Jesus. There was no one among the 12 that could truly say, I had Jesus' back. Sure, Jesus, Judas might have gone a step or two further, but the principle of what he did, Jesus changed all of their lives. Jesus spoken to all, one of them claims to be the beloved disciple of Jesus. He ran too, and he had no hope as well. And I wanna end by looking at God's response to Judas during the final few interactions with him. Because I feel like if you find yourself in that space, it can be, again, a really guilt-trippy, like very shameful place to be. And you're like, I don't know what to do. And you're kind of stuck in this kind of a bog, right? You want to get out, but there's all these things are happening. It's really hard to spur yourself out. And I want to end by looking at how God responds to Judas. Because I think there's something really important to notice. And it's important to note that Jesus knew pretty early on that Judas would betray him. So at the Last Supper, a year before the Last Supper, in John chapter 6, um, Jesus tells the disciples, he, he has chosen the 12, but then one of them would betray him. This happens a year before Judas would actually do this. And so it wasn't something that took Jesus by surprise. Jesus knew Judas would betray him. And yet, from that moment in scripture, if you read the rest of the gospels, there is no indication that Jesus treats Judas any differently. He doesn't cast Judas aside. He keeps him as part of the 12. And I think most like, touching is what Jesus does to Judas at the Last Supper. The fact that Jesus washes Judas' feet, even though he knows that in a few hours, this man is going to leave this company, go get armed guards, and betray me. He includes Jesus. And I think, like, a lot of foot washing gets lost in, like, it's really not the same. Like, the feet that Jesus washed and the feet that we wash when we do communion are totally different. We have closed-toed shoes. We have socks. We have soap. We have cars. We have paved roads. If you think about, like, what people washed back then. It's also important to note, like to show the extent of how gross it was, a Jewish slave could not wash feet. That was beneath him. You'd have to be a non, even if that person was a slave, if they were Jewish, you cannot have that person wash their feet. It's just so gross, right? Back, think about it. What is in those days, what are socks? What is hygiene? What are paved roads? There's animal and human waste all over. People walked everywhere sandals, but who knows what, what is even a shower? Has that word been invented yet? And I'm trying to think of like, what is the modern day equivalent of like washing someone's feet, especially in today? Like for the most part, our feet are pretty clean. Just to like give a picture of how humiliating and disgusting and like 
lonely of a role, it'd be like wiping someone's butt today. Like, it's like that gross. I mean, think about it. It's like humiliating, and it's like no one does that today unless you're paid for to do it, or like it's a family member that's like, you know, unable to do so themselves. It's like the bottom of the bottom. You would not imagine doing that to anyone else. But like, you kind of need to for hygiene. Someone's got to do it if they can't do it themselves. Like, that's how nasty it was that Jesus washed Judas's feet, knowing he wiped the caked mud and, and, and waste off his feet, knowing this man is going to stab me in the back in a few hours. Not only that, he includes him in communion. He invites him to eat from the wine and the bread and say, hey, have this. Experience my forgiveness. Experience renewal. I want you to stay by my side as long as possible. Ellen White has this beautiful quote where she says, wonderful had been the long suffering of Jesus in his dealing with this tempted soul. Nothing that could be done to save Judas had been left undone. By reading the secret purpose of the traitor's heart, Christ gave to Judas the final convincing evidence of his divinity. This was to the false disciple, the last call to repentance. No appeal that the divine human heart of Christ could make had been spared. In other words, there was literally nothing else Jesus could have done to reach out to Judas. And at the very end, when he tells Judas, go and do what you got to do, it was Jesus' way of saying, hey, by the way, I know what you're going to do. I know who you are, and I've kept you here this whole time. It was almost one last out for Judas to say, oh, you got me. I'm sorry, God. I didn't realize you knew this whole time. And he reminds him, Judas, I know, by the way, I've known for a long time. And yet Judas leaves anyway. There's this, it's amazing to me that Judas knew all, that Jesus knew all along, yet doesn't treat Judas any differently. And it's even more touching. The last words Jesus says to Judas, when Judas shows up with the armed guards and, and infamously kisses Jesus on the cheek to betray him, Jesus' response to him is, friend, do what you have come for. Not traitor, not sinner, not scum, not regret, not I wish you were never born. Friend, do what you came to do. To the very end, there is no hatred in Jesus' interaction with Judas, despite the fact that, again, he changed his life. Judas has no reason to act this way. Yet, to the very end, the last sentence Jesus says to Judas is, friend, do what you came here to do. Not too long ago, um, I caught up with one of our college students. Um, and as, as I often do when I, when I catch up with him about life, uh, the, the topic transition into, hey, how are you doing spiritually? How's your walk with Jesus going? I know it can be really hard with college and the busyness of balancing with social life and studying. And, um, and this person was telling me that, you know, pastor, I feel like every time I ask that question, they all like blush a little bit. They all get a little bashful. I'm like, ah, you know, could be better, could be worse. It's honestly not going that great. Um, and they're telling me how it's really hard to get that consistent, you know, devotional life going. And, you know, I'm really busy. There's a lot of tests coming up. And we're approaching the end of the school year. And I was like, hey, you know, no judgment. Um, and the reason I thought this was more interesting is because this is someone, there's some, some youth members, some people you talk to, where, like, every time you ask them how your relationship with Jesus is going, it's always, oh, it's, oh, it's bad. It's bad. I, haven't, I don't even know where my Bible is. I, I've never had a good relationship with Jesus. But the interesting thing about this person was we have had conversations previously where I know this person had been doing Bible studies with friends and, and, and really studying God's word in a community and really tapping into, you know, all the advantages of being, uh, he, goes, he or she goes into Adventist University about being there. And so I knew this wasn't just like a constant for this person. And, and they were talking to me about how like, yeah, I know, I know this isn't good. 
right? I know, and they always get a little bashful. I know, I know, I should do better, but how can I get out of this? And she, they were talking to me about like, what can I do? And I told them that personally, A, I think anyone that has followed Jesus for any moderate amount of time can relate to what you're going to. Obviously, we all know it's important. Um, but I told them this, that for me personally, um, having gone through this, especially when I was in college, and feeling that kind of like, I know I should, but I'm so busy and I've got so much going on, it can kind of eat at you a little bit. Um, for me, I told them this, what always brought me back was very rarely, if ever, intellectual stimulation. Like, I like heard an amazing take on a Bible passage. I was like, whoa, that's so cool. Let me start my devotional life again. Not impossible. For me, that's rarely been the case. It's also very rarely been where someone from the pulpit or a friend like reprimanded me and said, how dare you get your life together? Start reading. And I was like, okay, shame, shame, shame. I'll read my Bible. Very rarely hasn't been any of those. Not saying it's impossible. I'm not saying that doesn't happen. But for me, what's always brought, drawn me back out of those times of spiritual depression has been an experience of God's grace. And what do I mean by that is this. I feel like when you're in that spot and your relationship with Jesus isn't that great and you're going through a rut and you're not having a great devotion life, you know better than anyone else, you do not deserve God's love. Because there's that hypocritical tension inside you where you tell people, I believe in God, I love God, but you know deep down, I haven't been doing devotions, I haven't been spending time with God. God is not a big priority in my life. And so when you're in that tense moment and you know you don't deserve to be loved by God and yet someone comes up to you and says, hey, I was doing my devotionals and I just felt the need to pray for you, man. Are you doing okay? Or in those moments where someone comes up to you and says, hey, you said something that really blessed me. Thank you. I'm glad you're in my life. Those are moments that have always driven me back to God where I realized better than anyone else, I did not deserve for God to love me in the way that he did. Yet he loves me anyway. That will always bring me out of those moments. And I told a student, I said, hey, I totally get what you're going through. And I want to ask you this. Of course, on one hand, you can just grit your teeth and, and again, your choice, your story is your choice and you can start reading the Bible. But if not, at the very least, look for this. Be on the lookout for God's grace in your life because I guarantee you it's coming your way, that God will speak his grace and love into your life. And again, I think it's, that's really the difference between Judas and someone like Peter who also betrayed Jesus. That Judas, unlike Peter, died unwilling to receive what Jesus offered him, that grace. And Peter was able to experience and accept that grace. I want to make two claim, two calls to you today if, you're, if you find yourself struggling with that tension, that almost like inner hypocrisy, that spiritual depression where, where you feel like you're not necessarily walking the walk that you talk. I want to ask this, make every effort to become aware of the grace of God in your life. I'd go as far to say that you can expect a measure of undeserved love coming your way because that happens to be God's weapon of choice when reaching out to people that have strayed away from him. When you're living in that tension, I can almost guarantee you that there's a measure of grace coming your way and to be on the lookout for that. And secondly, and something you can do maybe a little bit more proactively to take the ball into your court, lean into this community. The reason I say that is Ellen White has this chilling line from her commentary on Judas. She says this, night it was, night it was to the traitor as he turned away from Christ into the outer darkness. Until this step was taken, Judas had not passed beyond the possibility of repentance. But when he left the presence of his Lord and his fellow disciples, the final decision had been made. He had passed the boundary line. It's almost poetic, right? This image of Judas walking away from the presence of Jesus, walking away from his 11 brothers, 
who he's done life with. And as he leaves that community, he leaves the presence of Jesus to walk by himself alone in the darkness, he crosses that line. And I think a lot of us can relate that when we're in that space of that tension and that darkness and shame and guilt, the last place you wanna be is alone in darkness, spiraling out of control. And in those moments, I think it's just so important, it's vitally important to your spiritual walk that you lean into community and that you realize you are not alone. And it, I would argue that's arguably the best place for you to experience God's grace. Look for grace and lean into community. I wanna end with this verse that kind of encapsulates how God, again, in a, in a verse, how God views you, how God views someone that deals with that tension and that shame in their life. It's from 1 John. God showed how much he loved us by sending his one and only son into the world so that we might have eternal life through him. This real love, this is real love, not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son as a sacrifice to take away our sins. That reminder that God has claimed you as a child of God, that you are his, he is yours. He is your God and you are his child. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, Feel like in this this message lord this message of of how we can possibly relate to the biggest antagonist uh, the person we want to least relate to in the story of scripture father can be a bit um disrupting for us lord and that brutal honesty can maybe shake us a little bit father but lord i ask that in these moments father you speak into our lives lord. again lord i pray this at the beginning of this message you know who this message was for father and i pray that if there's anyone in this room who felt their heart stir who felt their heart soften who felt that churning in their stomach that call that tug back to you father lord that you give them the courage and the strength and the encouragement to follow through on that and to come back to you father lord Lord, we know that you love us deeper than we can ever imagine. And there truly is, as Paul would say, nothing that could ever separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. We hold on to that promise. We look for your grace and we lean into this community. Thank you for who you are, what you've done, and what you will do. I pray this in your son Jesus' name.